This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. So wonderful to be with you all this morning. Such a privilege to come and enjoy God together. Uh, we're going to be continuing this series. I think you've kicked off on the prayers of Paul. And so if you've got a Bible, I'd love for you to turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. And then I'm going to read from verse 15 to 21. Uh, or maybe even to 23. Yes, to 23. And then I'll pray and we'll dive into what God might want to speak to us this morning. So Paul writing to the church in Ephesus and the churches of Asia Minor in the first century says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Father God, my prayer is very simply aligned with Paul's this morning, that you would give to us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you. We want to know you better, Lord, whether we are hearing of Jesus for the first time or, Lord, whether we have walked with Jesus for many years, we need you to reveal him to our hearts afresh. I invite you by your spirit to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The reality we see shapes our lives. The things that we set our eyes upon shapes the lives that we live. I can remember uh, before I was doing what I'm doing now, I was working in a windowless office. And you may have heard uh, some things about Wales. They're all true. It was a, a lovely July's day here in Cheltenham. But I was walking to my windowless office under drizzle and grey skies uh, there in Cardiff, in Wales's capital city. And um, I was there working away for the morning, and I, I had a meeting with a friend at lunchtime. And he comes in, and he says, Owen, Owen, we've got to go outside. We've got to experience the blazing sunshine and the beauty that's out of there to eat our lunch together and bask in the warmth of the day. And there I was, 
grumpily thinking this guy was pulling my leg because I had seen, the last thing I had seen was Welsh grey skies and drizzle and I was just looking forward to getting into my windowless office. And my response was grumpily to join this friend as he took me into the transformed beauty outside of my windowless office. The reality was my internal sense of happiness was shaped by what I was seeing, the windowless office in front of me, not the beautiful blue skies above me. And Christianity, the Christian faith, is all about seeing. Not seeing in a physical sense, but seeing spiritual reality. Jesus came to make us eyes wide open, fully awake to the reality of God. We see in some of Jesus' miracles, as in John chapter 8 and John chapter 9, he announces himself as the light of the world. If anyone turns and follows me, they will never walk in darkness again. And then he backs it up by healing a man who is blind. He's come to restore people's sight in relation to God. We sing, don't we, the famous hymn written by the former slave trader, John, New- uh, John, Newton. John Newton. I thought I was going to get my, my uh, Johns from history confused then. Um, John Newton, it was. John Newton who said, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm fine. I was blind, but now I see. Christ comes to give us spiritual sight. And the question I want to ask to us this morning is, are you using your spiritual eyes? We've been made awake. We have been given sight. But too often, as those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ, we close our eyes to the spiritual reality that God would want us to see. And this ties in then to this prayer that Paul prays here for the Ephesian church. Notice what Paul says. In verse 16, he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, and remembering you in my prayers, I pray this. This is a prayer that the Apostle Paul, the great missionary who saw many churches planted and many people come to know the Lord Jesus for themselves in the first century. This is a prayer that he says, I do not cease to pray this for you. I would say that on my best days, and I mean this, this is a prayer that I try to pray every single day. This is how much this passage has embedded itself in my life. And what does Paul pray Every single time he remembers this precious group of believers in the city of Ephesus, he prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you, you faltering, stumbling community of followers of Jesus, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know. Paul falls to his knees day after day and prays for this new church community that they would see. He does not cease to pray that the Spirit would give them revelation, sight, spiritually speaking, in the knowledge of God and in the knowledge of a few key things. 
The church in Ephesus was a church that was born under pressure. You can read the story of the church of Ephesus in Acts 19, but it was a community of Jesus followers who was born in the pressure of their culture hating them for worshipping Jesus. The city of Ephesus was known for its ornate idols and its devotion to these idols. And with such power did the message of Jesus Christ come to this city that it caused a riot because the local economy was struggling under the weight of the teachings of this man, Paul, and the church who were announcing that these idols that you put your trust in, these man-made gods are of no value whatsoever, and rather God has sent his son, the, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the revelation of who he is sent from heaven to be the Lord of all who will acknowledge him. And so this church here needed to see some gospel realities to keep them going. Maybe you're here this morning and you're living in a context too of pressure like the Ephesian church was. Maybe you feel the pinch and pressure as a church community here in Cheltenham. As increasingly our culture in the UK seeks to marginalise the voice of the church and seeks to vilify us for the things that we seek to make a stand on and hold on to in our devotion to Jesus. But maybe actually you're just living under pressure in your personal life today. Maybe there are some decisions that are hanging over you that feel crushing. Maybe there's pressure at work or pressure in the home, pressure in relationships, pressure financially. Well, Paul would pray these words for us. I have been praying these words for us too, that we too would have our eyes open to see a few key things that Paul suggests here help us to keep going to be faithful to Jesus in this world. In short, what he's praying for these believers is that they would see the vast depths of the gospel that are theirs in Jesus Christ. That they would see, they'd have their eyes open to seeing the spiritual realities that are true of them yes. in the midst of their pressure and difficulty. <clears throat> and I want to just pray that these things would be so for us today too. So what does Paul pray for them? Three things we find in verse 18 and onwards. That you may know, firstly, the hope to which he has called you. I want to say this morning, do you see the hope to which God has called you? Do you see the hope of eternity, the hope of heaven? One of the pressures that we live under in our culture is the pressure to live short-sighted. We live in a culture that is enslaved to the now. And we're trapped into wanting more of heaven in the here and now, right? Right? We, we live our lives trying to accrue the perfect life in the here and now. And we see on social media and everywhere around us as we drive around our city, as we relate to people, as we go and uh, go into the consumeristic temples of, of shopping supermarkets and places, like we see everywhere this, this pressure, this squeeze to live for the now. More stuff now, more excitement now, more peace in the here and now. And the result is that we lose a key Christian virtue. 
Do you know, one of the things believers are to be known for in this world is countercultural patience. Something I've been learning so much in church planting. You know, you set yourself out on this endeavor, and you want to see everything happen now, 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 now. You can apply it to your life and world, whatever it is that you're desiring to see. And yet, as followers of Jesus, we are called to be a people who model in this now enslaved world that we have a hope that is stored up for us, ahead of us, that we can patiently sit tight and wait for. If we live just squeezed by our culture for the now, we lose patience in our suffering, don't we? Because we don't focus on the glory that awaits us on the other side of suffering. We lose patience and perseverance in our loving because we don't see the ultimate goal of our love. And so loving difficult people becomes too much, too inconvenient for my busy life. We lose our power in witness if we lose patience, if we lose hope. Because we should be the people who model to the world that we do not need to get all of heaven now because we have got the truest heaven to come. You know, I often say to Grace Church Cardiff, because it's been such a revelation for my life personally, do you know the best bits of the Christian faith are to come? And I don't say that as a raging Pentecostal. The best is yet to come. I believe that. I believe God's got good things for our future, for your future, God first, Cheltenham. But the best bits of the Christian faith are to come the other side of death. Now, you will not believe that until your eyes are opened to see what Paul prays for. The hope to which he has called you. Hope incredibly central to our faith as followers of Jesus. Hope is not optimism. It's not optimism. Optimism is vain longing, isn't it? I hoped that Wales would win the Rugby World Cup. I'm not going to make any comments on what the result is in case anyone is uh, yet to see what the result is this morning. But at some stage, all human hope is going to end up being vain longing. I used to use this as my illustration, but this is how jammy a person I am. I used to say before churches, I hope that Leicester City, my childhood team, will win the Premier League one day. What a vain longing. Unfortunately, it's closer to biblical hope than I had uh, expected. Um, Because this, this, I'm losing the sports fans. I apologize. I'll put the sports uh, illustrations back into the box. What is biblical hope? It is not vain longing, not optimism. Biblical hope is confident assurance. It is confident assurance. It's living patiently, holding tight in the here and now, standing true to Jesus in the here and now. Why? Because I have a confident assurance that what awaits me is so far greater and so far better than what I'm experiencing in the here and now. This is a hope to which he has called us. You have been summoned to this hope. This is not a hope that you have earned. What I'm about to tell you about your Inheritance in heaven is not something that you work your way towards, but is a gift of grace to you from the Lord Jesus. He has called you to this hope. 
It is not something you earn by your merit. Jesus paid the bill for our future inheritance. And what is our future inheritance? Paul prays that they will see the hope to which they have been called. Do you know the whole last book of the Bible is written to emphasize this point to struggling communities of Christians? Revelation 21. What is the hope that awaits us? Then I saw. Notice John is seeing with eyes of faith a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their gods. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Our hope is a world renewed and reborn, remade by the God who made this world, a physical world where God reigns as king and where his presence is thick in every atom. And where evil and pain and suffering and injustice and every illness, every sadness is banished once and for all. Our hope is a world where we will see Jesus Christ face to face and he will welcome us home. Our hope is a a place where we will live in harmony, relating to one another, not out of angst and tension and jealousy but out of genuine, transformed hearts of love that want to seek the good of the other, completely secure in our own identity. Our hope is a world where forever we will be exploring the vast heights and depths of this new creation under the rule and reign of God, with no fear of pain or hardship, with no lack, with no want, a world of abundance, a world of peace. That is the hope that we are called to. Do you see that hope? If hope is not the fuel in your walk with Jesus, something else will be, and it will run out. We are to be a people who are fueled by gospel hope, who keep going through the pressures and difficulties of life because we have a reward and prize awaiting us the other side of death. We're to be people who counter-culturally embrace the reality that we are finite beings who don't need to get it all now because we know what is coming in the next life for us. Paul prays, please, Father, give them the spirit of revelation to see the hope to which they are called. How often do you daydream of heaven, God, first? How often do you take time out in your busy, pressurized lives to stop to breathe, and to say, one day Jesus is coming for me. He's going to make everything new. This was the fuel for the Apostle Paul. He says, these light momentary afflictions, he's talking about his sufferings. And before we think that Paul is talking about stubbing his toe on the way to the car in the morning, or or the Cheerios have ran out, and the kids have eaten all the cereal, or or whatever it might be, the, the struggles that very often characterize our lives, Paul calls light momentary afflictions, being beaten 
and exiled and facing sleepless nights and shipwrecks for his faith in Jesus Christ. Light and momentary, why? Because he was a man who saw with eyes of faith the eternal weight of glory that was in front of him. It gets better, friends. And I'm not going to guarantee to you today it gets better in this life. We believe in a God who breaks in power. This is later on in this message. And I need to get myself on from being so excited about hope. Um, <laughs> lest I take all my time here. But it gets better in the sense that even should you walk through death and lose everything, on the other side awaits you such a wonderful welcome from God and eternal peace. Live with your eyes on that. The second thing that Paul prays, does not cease to pray for this church, is that they might see, with eyes of faith, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Quite a complicated phrase. I want to put it like this. Do you see this morning the glory of your identity? Do you see this morning the glory of your identity in Jesus Christ? Put it another way. Do you know this morning how God feels about you? Do you know how God feels about you? It's so interesting that Ephesians is this, they call it a general letter of Paul. What they mean by that is it was addressed to the Ephesian church, but he probably meant for it to be circulated to lots of different churches. So he doesn't address very many specific issues going on in this church community because he wants to write a letter that will benefit all of Christians across a whole region and, of course, because it's in Scripture for us, for all of time. And what is so interesting is that Paul spends so much time unpacking in the book of Ephesians the believer's identity in Jesus Christ. He wants to root and establish them in a pressurized world that would seek to blow them off course with all kinds of difficulties and pressures. He wants to root and establish them in this. This is who you are in Jesus, and because of this, this is how God feels about you. You can read Ephesians 1. He's already unpacked so many truths about being loved by God, chosen by him from before the foundation of the world, beloved by him, sealed by the blood of Jesus, lavished with grace upon grace, caught up into his eternal plan. There's so many truths about the Christian identity here. But the key lesson that he then turns into a prayer is that we'll only know how to live well as believers when we know that we are loved well as believers. We will only know how to live the Christian life when we know who it is that we are as Christians. We can't live who we are until we believe who we are. There's a story, um, I'm not sure if it's true or whether it's a kind of a myth that's just um, come into the fabric of, of storytelling history, but Walt Disney apparently had a maid and um, this maid was a faithful housekeeper for Walt Disney while he was going about building his Disney empire. And at the end of every working week, when the wages were due to be paid, he would give her not only her wage slip, but actually also another piece of paper. And she, as a simple, humble maid, did not know what this piece of paper was. In fact, as the myth goes, she was illiterate. 
She had no way of really fully comprehending and understanding what this thing is. And so the story goes that she would take this piece of paper and take it as a bit of a certificate and a bit of a memento from Walt Disney, store it up. And so she would put it, as, she, as we do, in her bedside table or a drawer in her house. Every man's got a man drawer. Everything goes in the man drawer. Um, bedside table, she puts this, um, these slips And lo and behold, this lady passes away, and as they are going through her possessions, they discover that what Walt Disney was giving to this lady was stocks, shares in Disney. As a gift of love and kindness to her for her faithful service. But she never knew. She was sitting on an inheritance. She was rich beyond words, and she didn't even know about it. And I think Paul's passion and his fear for the church in Ephesus is that, guys, you've, you've been made alive in Christ. You have received this glorious identity. And my fear is you don't even know who you are. And that's God's passion for us this morning. We bumble along, don't we, in our lives following Jesus, seeking to do the best that we can. We rarely take time to reflect not just on the hope that's ahead of us, but actually, who am I? In a world that seeks to confuse us with all kinds of counter-messages about our identity, Paul prays with all his heart that their eyes would be open to see the glory of their identity. This is how he puts it, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. What's strange here is that the inheritance that's being referred to is not our inheritance, but it seems like it's God's inheritance. And so just try and get your, wrap your mind around this. I don't feel like I've plumbed the depths of this very far at all. Um, so I leave it to the Spirit to, to take this and to do more in your head than maybe he's done in mine. But what Paul is praying here is that they would know that we, humble, weak, flawed, fallen people, who have put our simple trust and faith in Christ and what he's done for us on the cross, That at that moment where we are made spiritually alive and our eyes are open to who God is, we become God's inheritance. God has a glorious inheritance, and where he's stored that glorious inheritance is in the saints. What is an inheritance? It's something, isn't it, that you look forward to. And the suggestion, I think, here is what Paul is praying. God has something that he is so looking forward to. There's a passion raging in God's heart, a desire for his inheritance. And where that inheritance is stored is in you and me who follow Jesus. The Bible would say that we, the church, the saints, we are the bride of Christ. And like a groom waiting For the bride to appear down the aisle, so Christ in heaven is looking on with longing and passion in his heart for his inheritance to arrive home, for us to be with him forever, for him to return and put history to an end and to receive us into his arms that we might be with Jesus forever. We are his treasured possession, who he longs for, looks forward to meeting face-to-face, once and for all. Mm. 
So do you know how God feels about you this morning? Do you see the riches of his glorious inheritance that are in you? I've got a friend who's a pastor in another church in South Wales, and I remember hearing an interview with him once. And he was asked this question, as a church leader, if you could instill one truth in the minds of every person in your congregation overnight so that they went to sleep one night not believing one thing and they woke up the, other, the next morning confidently assured, I know this, what would it be? It's a fascinating question to ask, isn't it? And he simply said this, it is finished. It is finished. That they would understand that believers would know that Christ has dealt with their sin. He has dealt with their guilt and shame. When he walked up that road to Calvary, he took all our sin and our sorrows upon himself and he buried it to the grave. And when he rose to new life, he did so so that we who trust in him can be in him and can receive his own identity to be a child of God's. And that we might know once and for all, without a shadow of a doubt, because Christ has dealt with the stuff that separates me from God, I am loved. I'm precious and cherished and chosen and treasured by God Almighty. And there is nothing that can separate me from his invincible and never-ending love. The riches of his glorious inheritance is in you. You have a glorious identity Do you see it? Paul prays we would see it. And then finally, one final thing that Paul prays for this church is that we might see the surpassing power of Jesus. Do you see the power of Jesus? I pray that you'd see the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is, verse 19, the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Paul even starts this passage by praying, as a general prayer across the specifics that he's going to apply into, that they might have wisdom in the knowledge of God. The big thing, I think, that Paul wants them and us to know and to live with eyes wide open to is just simply who God is. Sounds so simple. I sound so stupid even (laughs) in saying it like that, but actually the thing that we need beyond all else if we're going to keep going and thrive in our lives with Christ, is a towering vision of the person of God. Do you know, he alone is the prize of the Christian life. If we sell people on anything else, if we say, come to Jesus because of the gimmicks, come to Jesus because it's an easier life, come to Jesus because there's really nice people that can be your friends. Not only are we misleading them, it's far more tragic than that. We are selling them short. Often because we don't see the glory of who God is ourselves, we can seek to communicate our Christian faith to others on terms that are not who he is. 
And in doing so, we do not show them the the glorious prize that sits at the center of the Christian faith, of the gospel itself, that we get to know him. And so do you see who he is? But in particular, God has been revealed at a place, at a time, in a person. Paul points us to it here. That he is the God of resurrection power who is revealed in the empty tomb of Jesus. He wants these believers to return time and time again in their pressurized, difficult environment to the empty tomb of Jesus, to see with eyes of faith as Mary and Peter and John did on that first Easter morning. The stone rolled away. Where's the master? He is not here. He is risen. We need to return there time after time to see what? To see here, Paul prays, that you might know the surpassing power of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus that's pointed to here according to the the work of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. The resurrection is where we see that God is real. He is historically present in an empty tomb. Who else has walked free from death but the Son of God? He is real. We see in the empty tomb that he is powerful. Who else can beat the power of death but this God who raised his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ? We see in the empty tomb that he is a God who is near. Look at the resurrection appearances of Jesus in the Gospels. He's eating breakfast with his friends. He's gently laying his scarred hands upon the shoulders and greeting with warmth his disciples. There's an intimacy to his appearances. And we see a God in the empty tomb who is making all things right. That he was made alive and ascended and is now seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come, to put everything under his feet, to be given as head over all things to the church, which is its body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We see in the empty tomb a God who is making everything right. And this changes everything when we see the surpassing power of Jesus, that our Jesus is real. That changes our day to day. We walk with a real, a living, a true God, not like the gods of um, Ephesus, not like the gods of this world. We don't live with a make-believe God, but with a living God. We live with a God who is powerful, who beat death, and so who can show up in resurrection power in our lives today. That the ruins and the rubble that we might be living with today does not have to be the end of the story for our lives. God can turn disappointments on their head. God can turn death on its head. Because he is alive, he is a powerful, living saviour. He is near, that makes all the difference. He is not alive just for a fanfare, but to live in us. To come and to be intimately present with us by the Spirit. And he's God who's making all things right. That makes all the difference for difficult, pressurized lives. Because at the end of difficult and pressurized days, we're reminded of what it is that we have been invited into. 
God's project to renew the world through the message of Jesus, to invite people into the living hope and the glorious identity of being the inheritance of God. Do you see the surpassing power of Jesus? The empty tomb is not just a truth that we are to believe in, but a reality that we are to experience that makes all the difference for our lives. The courage to witness for Jesus. Where did it come from for those disciples? It came from seeing him alive. The courage to love difficult people. Where does it come from? It's a wonderful verse at the end of 1 Corinthians 15 that says, Brothers, do you not know that your labor in the Lord, none of it is in vain? comes at the end of a chapter about the resurrection. Why? Because if Jesus is alive, then every labor of love that we give ourselves to in this life is making an eternal difference. The courage to endure time and time again we see in the New Testament comes from seeing that Jesus is alive and he is enthroned. Think about the story of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. And there he is before a crowd of people who are chanting hatred against him. And it says in the book of Acts, but Stephen gazed, his sights were raised, into heaven where he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the throne of God. And by the end of that passage, Stephen is stoned for his faith, killed. And prays such wonderful words of love. Father, don't hold these people's sin against them. Where does the courage, where does the radical, wonderful, beautiful example of Christian faith come from for people like Stephen and for ordinary believers like you and me in the church in Ephesus? It comes from seeing the surpassing power of Jesus Christ. Our God is alive. He is enthroned and he will see history through to its destined climax where he will be the Lord of all. Do you see the surpassing power of Jesus? And so I want to end this morning by just throwing those questions at us afresh. Do you see your hope? Do you see the glory of your identity? Do you see the power of Jesus in your life? Two closing comments. Number one, you may be here this morning and you may have never had your eyes open to these things. I want to encourage you that through simply asking God to open your eyes to Jesus, these realities can become yours too. You can live with the hope of heaven. You can live loved, secure, as God's treasure possession. You can live with the surpassing power of Jesus, towering over your life, making all the difference in difficult days. But then secondly, maybe there are those of us this morning who we are followers of Jesus, but actually this morning has challenged you. I've been living with my spiritual eyes closed. How do we open our eyes afresh to this truth? Well, the rest of the book of Ephesians is basically just Paul getting these people under the sound of the truth of the gospel. And that's what it looks like for our lives too. When I was in that windowless office, 
I would never have experienced the beauty of the day outside had I not taken a step outside. And the invitation, I believe, from God today is just to simply open your eyes, remember, go back to the truth of God's words, and invite the Holy Spirit to come and make these things real to you again. So that you might live eyes wide open, able to stand, able to thrive as a follower of Jesus in this world. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we invite now the Spirit of God to come and open our eyes. We want to see the beauty, the glory of Jesus. We want to see the hope that is laid up for us in heaven. We want to see, Lord, how much we mean to you. I pray, oh, Father in heaven, that you would take my fragile words and make them live in people's hearts that we might stand as people whose eyes are open to who our Lord Jesus is and the difference that he makes in our lives. Amen. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.